Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. The other day, I, I got a lucky break. I was I left the studio. I went for an audition in Hollywood. I'm driving back, and my car kept overheating. So my car's older, and you know I thought it was fine. It overheats. And finally, I'm on Olive, and it cuts out. So now I'm getting worried. It just it cut out. So I restarted again, and I knew it was something because it was overheating. And someone's looking out for me because I actually, it cut out two more times. And the last time it cut out, I coasted and actually pulled into a lot four of uh, Warner Brothers. And what's funny is the security guard's like, yeah, yeah, you can't come in here. I'm like, dude, my car is broken down. And I got to tell you, they were so nice because they actually put cones around it until AAA came. So I got lucky because if I think I got stopped on the freeway, I would have been dead. So anyway, Enough about me. We have, we have a great show. We have a we have a, a great stand-up comic, a radio legend in L.A. We have a Frazier Smith. I do a Frazier. Steve, how are you? Good, good. It's a, I, I, I know your work. It's the first time I said I met, I met this gentleman once. He hosts the Ice House. You host a lot of shows there. Yeah, I met Ice House a lot. Yeah. And I met you, and you were very nice because I was doing I was doing the uh, I think I was doing the Little Room, and you had a, a one night, and I came up and I talked to you, and then you gave me Zach's uh, email, and we went from there. There you go. And by the way, that is a good way to get on any studio lot is to pretend like your car broke down. I always do that. And uh, then, you know, they put the cones around. You got the good parking. It was great. Then you go in and try to weasel a meeting. Exactly. And they they threw me out. Actually, the next day I actually went back because I shot Ellen. I I was on a sketch on Ellen. So I was at the other, I was at gate two. And I was like, if it's just been the same day. Yeah, come on. That would have worked out. So I got to talk, you know, now you're originally from Detroit. Uh Uh-huh. Now, did you always want to do comedy or did you always want to do radio? Or what did you want to do when you were a young kid? Well, you know, uh, for me, it was always about television. I, I wanted to uh, be Steve Allen was my uh, first guy that I really watched on TV. My dad was a big Steve Allen fan. And uh, and then, you know, Johnny Carson, of course. And, and uh, that's really what I was hoping to do was something like that. Uh, to be a host or yeah, just? Yeah, TV host. Okay, so now where, how did you get your start in the business? Well, I started working on radio uh, when I was really young. I was like 17. I got a job on a station. I was going to Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. And, uh, you know, and they had a, a local station, a, a kind of a top 40 station. And I went out there and got the gig. And so you start there and just you fell in love with it? or You know, it really uh, was just look, looked at uh, to me as a means to an end. I was really hoping to get somewhere else with that, and I never did. <laughs> no, well, no. Forty years, no. I was still in radio. Now, now, what what was your major at uh, when you were in college? Communications. Okay, so you knew you wanted to go that that way. Yeah, and I was in a class. I remember I was in a class with Tim Allen. Tim and I were in this TV class together, and we had a really good instructor because this guy had actually worked for ABC Television uh, for a long time. And so he really knew what he was talking about. So we had this one professor, we still talk about it because I wind up opening for Tim every once in a while. And we still mention this guy as being, you know, one of those few teachers. I, I think you always have maybe one or two that you remember as being someone who really could guide you or show you anything, uh, that you might use later. And that was this guy. And so, yeah, uh, I think, uh, both Tim and I were sort of headed in that direction. So you're hanging out in Michigan, right? And now, how do you d- decide to get to your point of, if you said, being a Johnny Carson or getting in other radio gigs? What what ask, what traveling do you take? Well, you know, I started doing stand-up uh, in Detroit, and I was doing uh, radio as well. And 
just sort of thought I might be able to move it to a higher level. Uh, Detroit has very good radio, by the way. It's just known for that. Um, but, you know, there's only limited options in the Midwest in terms of where you can go. And I remember I had the guys on from the Firesign Theater. They were always fans of mine. I had them on my show. I mean, I was always a fan of theirs. And I had them on my show. And uh, the guys were like, hey, you're pretty good. Why don't you come out to the West Coast? You know, they probably say that to everybody that they run into. But, uh, you know, I, I took them up on it. And I remember uh, calling uh, Phil Austin when I got out here. And he goes, wow, I never thought you'd actually do it. <laughs> that's, always, that's always a good confidence booster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Phil was very uh, instrumental in helping me get started out here. Because I got a job right away on K-Rock. Uh, basically based on his name, because I, I mentioned that I was going to be working with Phil. He said he would do a show if I could get it, you know, if I could get the show, I had to do the legwork on it. And they said, all right, well, if you have Phil Lawson, we'll do it. So that's how I got started. What was, was out you, here? When you said, well, you've been stand up comedy, what was comedy like when you started out in Detroit? Was there, was there a bustling scene? I mean, cause you know, I, I started out, I did it in Philadelphia from like 88 and there's been a roots established before that in Philadelphia, but where a lot of guys probably weren't doing comedy. And I mean, was it an open mic scene or how did you guys break into the business in Detroit? Cause it's probably you and Tim Allen, probably Joe Napote. Well, Joe, and of course, and right. And Dave Coulier and a few of the guys who wound up coming out of Detroit. Yeah. It wasn't a big scene. You know, they had the comedy castle really was just starting up and that's become their big club. Their number one club still is, uh, out in Royal Oak. But, um, yeah, that was the only real club. And then there was a little club in Ann Arbor, and I, I started there, actually, in the little club in Ann Arbor, and then uh, went to the Comedy Castle, and, and uh, a lot of those guys came out here. Mike Binder, uh, Dave Coulier, Napoti, and all those guys wound up coming out here, and we all kind of decided to give it a shot. So what was it like moving to L.A.? I always ask people, where was the first place you moved? Because I, I lived in this little studio in Hollywood, and it was 15 years ago, and, and it was still when that McDonald's was on the corner of Sunset and Highland, that old McDonald's, and it was still pretty crappy. And I, I think I paid 3.85 for uh, a studio. Right. Where, where, where was the first place you moved when you came oh, out? God, well, I think I, I stayed with friends really when okay. I first got here, and uh, and then I got a little place down in in uh, Palms. Okay. Yeah, which was just the oddest place. I don't think I've been there since. Uh, but yeah, a tiny little place. And you're right. When you first get here, you just get whatever you can. Uh, and, but I was lucky enough to get a job right away. I got on K rock pretty quickly uh, again, thanks to Phil Austin. So I, I, you know, I, I, uh, all of a sudden was working out here pretty quickly. Now, what was K rock like back then? Because this is what year is this? This is 77. Okay, because, you know, I was back east, and back then we listened to WMMR, Philadelphia, sure. and, we and we listened to YSP. Sure. And that was the one play. The, I mean, it was just, it was, cla it was driven by classic rock, and it was amazing, all the bands I look back that I heard. And, and it's differently because, you know, being back east, there's a lot more rotation of Springsteen and Southside Johnny and stuff like that. Yeah. What was K-Lock like what, when you came out here, and what was your job? What were you supposed to play, and what was your show all about? Well, we had a comedy show, so we didn't have to worry about the music too much. Uh, it was Phil Austin, me, and a guy named Michael C. Gwynn. And Michael's an actor who's done a lot of stuff. Um, he played uh, uh, the Duke of Darkness on the uh, in the Howard Stern movie. Okay. He's been in a lot of stuff. And, um, and so the three of us started doing this comedy show. And we just, you know, uh, basically uh, winged it. It was called Hollywood Night Shift. 
and we would just put on a sound effect record and then just ad lib over the top of that because we really didn't have time to prep. Uh, those guys were pretty busy. Phil was still busy with fire signs. So we just had to kind of wing it. That show really caught on. And then they gave me a Friday night show where I was doing Friday and Saturday, uh, I guess, where it was me doing uh, comedy and music. And at that time, you know, uh, punk rock and new wave were just getting sort of started. Uh, in America, and they'd been in England for a few years, and then now we were starting to get them. And uh, I was really a classic rock guy, you know, probably like you were, coming from the Midwest, uh, all the typical classic rock bands. And uh, so it was kind of new for me to see these, uh, I, I guess for everyone to hear these bands. And Rodney Bingenheimer was on after me. So Rodney would always have, uh, you know, uh, a line on the new bands, on the bands who were coming up and coming in. And uh, I remember the first night on the job, I met uh, Tom Petty, uh, Deborah Harry, uh, Tom, um, a couple of the Sex Pistols, and a couple of the Ramones. They were all on Rodney's show, and they didn't have any product out. Nobody knew them. And Rodney said, they're all going to be huge. And I was like, yeah, right, Rodney. You know, <laughs> But he was right. Rodney's pretty good at picking bands. So you know, I started playing all the bands that he was sort of turning me on to. Because uh, that was a time when you could play your own music. It was a, a rare uh, time in radio before playlisting really got going. What I mean, what what happened? Why did playlists start happening? I mean, it's something that it seemed back then. You know, the, I remember, I still remember hearing Joe Jackson and the Police for the first time, and you know, they were unknowns, and it was like, you know, it was a thing. What happened? Why did it change? Well, I think it's always a control issue, and uh, particularly when. Uh, you know, uh, conglomerates started uh, buying out stations. What happened is that when you have a, uh, a station group that uh, has, you know, seven or eight stations in a market, they like to control the content, I think. And, it, and I think in their minds, um, they also sort of, I feel, always kind of um, overlook the knowledge of the audience. I think the audience is pretty sharp. You know, uh, the listeners really are pretty up on music especially in a market like Los Angeles. And um, so it's kind of odd that they do that. But, you know, I think their feeling is, well, we can't let these DJs just run hog wild. We've got to have some kind of control. And that's where that started. Well, now you said your show was both music and comedy. What kind of comedy were you doing? Sketch comedy? Because I'm a, I'm a fan of, I remember, you know, listening to Dr. Demento as a kid. And I remember my brother playing Cheech and Chong, the, white, uh, the wedding album, which always just was great for me what kind of comedy were you doing on the radio in between the music when you're playing well i was just talking uh just riffing really just uh stream of consciousness you yeah. know um it's not as uh i wouldn't play comedy records like dr demena who i also work with a lot uh, as an old friend and um i would just talk in between and just make stuff up basically i was just riffing nonsense and uh, kind of saturday night live weekend update stuff in between interstitially and then play the the a lot of the new music now would you prep for your comedy or would you just sit there and just say i have an idea i'm gonna run with it no i would write it uh some of it and and some of it i would just come off the top but i would um you know basically deal topically which is what i do still do you know whatever's going on that week i would try to uh incorporate now as you're doing your show are you start? Are you still doing stand up out here? Are you getting involved in that, or was it too 
because you're working Friday and Saturday nights, so that's not always the best thing for a stand-up comic because that's when the weekend crowds are. Were you still were you still trying to hit the stages, or were you still getting to know a lot of comics? That must have been a great time for like the Ice House and on and, and the, all the whole scene. Well, it was yeah, the Ice House was um, was starting to get going, and I did do a little bit of stand-up. Um, at the Ice House, actually, they had a contest, and I did. I remember doing some stand-up there. They had a big uh, contest, and a lot of my buddies who wound up being big stand-up comics were in that contest. Um, and so I started there, but I really didn't get going on it until um, I moved to KLOS. I was uh, hired to do mornings at KLOS, and I really didn't have a sidekick, and I didn't really th- know that I needed one. I had been working with Vic Dunlop. I don't know if you remember Vic. Yeah very talented comic and he was a producer as well so he was producing my radio show and uh one day Vic says i want you to meet this guy and he brought jamie masada up to his office who's the owner of the laugh factory at that time jamie didn't even have a club he was uh an actor who just recently come to america and uh he said i'm going to start a club i he, i thought with his crazy accent he has a funny accent i thought he'd be the perfect sidekick so I, I hired Jamie. He was my sidekick. And uh, he kept telling me, I'm going to open a club. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. Because uh, we hear so much of that out right. here. <laughs> and uh, wouldn't you know what he did about six months later. So then, you know, that's when I started really uh, doing more stand-up was I would go down to Jamie's club. It was kind of a, uh, you know, trade-off. He would do my radio show, and then I would go down and work at his club. Now, you were doing the morning radio out here. And now when you go do it, do the stand up, I know sometimes, sometimes people don't, I mean, you, you had stand up chops cause you were doing it in Detroit. But a lot of times people think, you know, when they hear someone from a morning show or a radio show coming to do stand up, they don't really think they're a verse stand up. At least that's what I know from like in Philadelphia, we'd have the guys come in from the morning zoo and they didn't know what the hell they're doing. But you know, but now was it, were, was the, were the comics very accepting to you? Was the crowd, was it crowd expecting you to say, Hey, we're coming to see Fraser from the morning show. And then when you do your act, if it's a little bit different, how, what was the, uh, what they expect me, what the expectations? Well, I don't know, you know, stand up, you're right. It's a different animal. And, um, I was never very good at it. And, uh, you know, so I really had to work at it and it's, it, to me, it was harder to figure out than the radio radio. I'd done so long that it was almost just natural for me. Um, the, the, uh, stand up I had to work at and, I really had to just feel my way along and figure out what worked for me because it wasn't the same as what worked on the radio. What worked on the radio for me was stream of consciousness. It's hard to pull that off on stage. Right. A few comics can, but, uh, you know, I came up with that, that whole group that was coming up, Kinnison and Dice and, and all those guys, Bob Saget from Philly and, uh, you know, all that era were all my kind of contemporaries and they kind of helped me and guided me and, what I found out was that my stuff worked best in kind of a Johnny Carson one-liner style, which is kind of an old-school style. But that's what I found out worked for me on on stage, and that's not what works for me on the radio. It's a completely different thing. Well, I'm always, I'm always just fascinated by people who do the stand-up, uh, the one, the Johnny Carson one-liner thing. What I always what fascinates me is, first of all, how much you have to remember. I mean, it's not like, you know, if, if you go do like a five minute bit, it's fine. But I watch someone like, you know, John Mendoza, who will just sit there and do joke. And you sit there and go, you're just sitting there going, how I'm, I'm old. I forget, you know, to take stuff out. It's like, how, I, I mean, I don't know how people, how do you discipline yourself to remember when you're doing shorter bits? Because you, it's, you don't want to sound like you're coming on a, a rote. You're not saying, oh, 
probably, um, you know, how, how would you remember your material? Well, you know, I'm an older guy too now, and uh, I kind of use it as a memory exercise. Okay. You know, kind of helps me to, I think, uh, keep my memory intact. And it's really just about how you organize your set. You know, it's, it, I do it in chunks. And, you know, I'll do a chunk about TV or I'll do a chunk about politics or, you know, sports. And then so you kind of keep your flow that way. You know, you know that you have your five or six jokes on sports and, you know, you can add and subtract, of course, every week. There's different something new. So you're always adding to your sports section or taking stuff out that's dated or whatever. But basically you remember it. But I think at least I do by having those different chunks of material that sort of, um, you know, you'll you'll do five political jokes and then you'll move on to five sports jokes. You know what I hate, and maybe you'll, you'll run into this. I'm I'm a king of uh, pop culture because you've been in the radio and you've been you know with when you used to do Rose Bowl things like I, I want to talk about that when you guys would turn the the audio down and do that. Sure. Um, I for me what I hate is I love old pop culture. I love old TV sitcoms. And what I what I hate is now if I go in front of a crowd sometimes and you want to do a reference. Problem is because now comedy, we forget comedy crowds are 21 to whatever, 60. <laughs> Sometimes the crowds just don't get them. And I, and I hate that because it's something that you love and you love doing it and you want to pigeonhole someone. Do you ever run, do you ever do dated jokes? Not dated jokes, but I mean, you know, we know if I do a what's happening reference, well, anyone who's 35 and up is going to go, hey, hey, hey. But, but a younger crowd, <laughs> they sit there oh, and go, what gets, the hell are you talking about? It gets worse as you get older. <laughs> you know, as you get older, you're like, okay. They're not going to get any of this. Uh, yeah, you kind of have to cheat it in their direction and kind of do stuff that you know they're going to get, the crowds of today, because you're right. You can't really do, um, you know, it's funny. People just have uh, have uh, no memory of that era, and it wasn't that long ago. I know. You know, it's funny. I was at uh, my church. I was doing, they, they had me do the announcements as Carson. Uh, about a year ago, and they spray painted my hair white, which didn't take a lot of paint these days. And I, uh, you know, I kind of, and I do a passable Carson. Everybody does at this point, but I, you know, so I went out, I did the announcements, and uh, thought it went pretty well. And they had a guy playing Ed McMahon, and it was funny. And and uh, so anyway, afterwards, anyone under eighteen didn't know even know who I was doing. They were like, "Who is he doing?" They don't even know Johnny Carson. Isn't that and, scary? And you know, Johnny Carson's the guy who was on TV the most of anybody. And people still don't know him, you know, 20 years later. It is scary. You know, you think because, I mean, he he is such an icon. And, and and people, when I was younger, I knew all the older acts. I think maybe maybe it's my parents, the way we grew yeah. up. And I remember listening to music. You knew the, you know, the we'd watch Lawrence Welk on New Year's Eve, you know, and you knew that stuff. And now it just amazes me that how a lot of the younger people don't know some of the, I mean, if. For me, if I if I was I mean I have a girlfriend, but if I was dating and I went out with a girl and she didn't know who Johnny Carson was, I wouldn't be able to date her. Just no, that could be a deal breaker. <laughs> I've had that happen. You know, that's the thing about dating younger women. You're you're like, well, wait a minute. I hope they know who some of these bands are that I know. I mean, you know, it's true, and and um, you just have to live with it. You have to adjust, and I think do you know stuff that um, that they do get. But it is pretty weird. It was weird what you said that, you know, I think we did our homework. I'm not saying the millennials don't, but, uh, I, I, you know, I find that we did know more about what had gone on in the past than they, uh, seem to know. That's it. That's even in comedy. I was, I was someone, I was talking to someone on Facebook 
And they said, oh, I'd love to be on your show. And it was uh, a female comic I'd never heard of, and she was not in the state. And I said, oh, well, you know, I said, well, I don't do a lot of comics, blah, blah, blah. I said, you know, but when I do a show, I had someone, you know, I had uh, one show, I had Wendy Liebman, then Heather McDonald, then Mary Lynn Rashkop. And she's like, oh, and I go, and Wendy Liebman, I said, is wonderful. And she didn't know who Wendy Liebman was. And I was sitting there going, if you're a female comic and you don't know, because she's one of the brilliant girl. Yeah. Funny. I, it's just amazed me. Like when I was younger, I mean, you knew like with comedy, we knew who our predecessors were. And even if it was just 10 years, it's just crazy now. Yeah, it really is. And, and, um, Wendy's a good example. I just had her on my show. She's brilliant. And you're right. I had people asking me, well, who is that? She's, she was great. Who is she? Uh, it's pretty weird because she's been on TV a lot. Tons. And was just on America's Got Talent and did very well on there. And Yet there's people who are like, who? And I don't know if that's a sign of the times or, or you know, maybe they just don't, you know. I know when we were coming up, um, it was the comedy album era. At least it was for me. And my parents used to play, you know, uh, all the old Jonathan Winters, Cosby, all that stuff, uh, New Heart. And they would have parties and play these records, you know. And uh, and then I got into, of course, Richard Pryor and, and Carlin and, and all of those albums. And, uh, you know, even some Lenny Bruce. I used to listen to Lenny Bruce all the time. So you um, you would learn who these people were from the era before you or a couple eras before you. And like you said, Ed Sullivan had a, a lot of the older comics on. And, you know, I was a March Brothers fan, so I would watch Marx Brothers and, and Bob Hope and and uh, like I say, Steve Allen. So, yeah, you would watch and you'd know these people that were on maybe the era before you. Uh, nowadays, I don't think people do that. I think there's too much stuff for them to do. Right. I mean, and it's funny because, you know, you even think you and you would see the similarities. Like, you know, if you ever saw Jack Benny and then you watch Frasier, not Frasier, the show Frasier, David Hyde Pierce's was, character is very Jack Benny in the physical comedy. But people don't correlate stuff like that anymore. They don't sit there and go, oh, well, this guy's joke's someone like this guy's jokes it's just weird i don't think they even really know i think there's just too much going on these days you know they've got the internet they've got so many different things that they can do that they're not really focusing like we had to we were stuck with three channels and, right you know you kind of have to watch ed sullivan and oh yeah there's that guy that comic um so i think yeah we probably did our homework a little bit more maybe it was a little easier for us to do that but, uh, yeah, I, I find what you're saying is true. A lot of times they just don't get a reference that's not even that old. Right. So you're on KLS in the 80s. Now, what, what was L.A. like in that time when you're on the radio? I mean, because it was it wasn't the radio was more everyone listened to the radio. It, it's weird. Like it, you couldn't download music. You didn't have the Internet when you wanted to hear a certain song or hear a certain show. You listened to it. What was it like broadcasting back then when basically the airwaves were yours? because there wasn't a ton of other stations. I mean, what was that like? Well, I was lucky, uh, really, uh, Stephen, that, I, that to arrive at that time, because it was a good time to be in radio, and it allowed me to get really big, because everyone was listening to radio, and you didn't have, uh, you know, Pandora, and you didn't have, uh, you know, satellite radio, and you didn't have uh, the internet or anything. So there, there was just radio, and it was a chance to get big, you know, uh, because if you had something different, if you had something fun, you know, you kind of had the run of the town. And it was also an interesting time musically because <clears throat> a lot of those bands were coming in, like you mentioned, the police and 
uh, <clears throat> bands like that we were hearing for the first time. So there was a it was a, a musical revolution of of a kind too, with the new wave kind of being incorporated to the into the old classic rock and um and the punk rock scene and everything and the clubs were really popping if you remember if you go up and down the sunset strip uh i was always at the whiskey i was always at the you know at the roxy and the rainbow and i knew the guys that ran all those clubs and you kind of had a scene going on and uh so that kind of made it fun too everything kind of uh, uh cross-pollinated uh itself you know you'd, you'd have bands that would come on your show and then they'd be playing on the strip that night you go up and see them and your listeners would go see them and you had a chance to turn people on to new music and you know it's just a an, an exciting time now who were some of the bands you would go see at the whiskey because i know you were probably around when the uh when the metal started blowing up i know you i know you recently had uh tracy guns on your show yeah tracy was on the show well that was an era that uh I was telling Tracy that uh, I would go to the Rainbow, for example, and um, uh, my buddy owned the Rainbow, and I would go in there, and and uh, all the bands would be in there hanging out, and you know you'd see you know the guys from Motley Crue or the guys from you know all all those bands that later became pretty big um, would be hanging out there, and they would give me their cassettes. It was back in the cassette era, and I'd be like, yeah, thanks, man, and then I you know take it home and throw it in a drawer. And uh, that's what I, the story I told was uh, listening to Motley Crue for the first time because I, the, I had gotten a cassette, hadn't really listened to it. I put it on one day just out of boredom, and I go, wow, that's pretty good. And uh, I remember playing the song Livewire. Uh, you know, back then you could still play an occasional song without getting in trouble with management. <laughs> and uh, so I played, you know, I had a big enough ratings to, you know, get away with it maybe once a show. So I would play that and uh, it really caught on. And, and then, you know, I don't know if I get credit for breaking them or not, but certainly a chance to uh, to help those guys out. And um, yeah, like I say, it was an era where you could still do that. Now, you said, you know, a lot of groups would give you tapes. Like, who were some other groups that gave you tapes? And if, if you kept them, you probably must have an amazing collection. Well, I didn't keep them. You know, you always lose them when you move. Yeah. And you always wind up with the tapes you don't want. I know. It's, it's, like, like, it's what? like bread. I don't want I, bread. Yeah, I got this guy. All right. Well, you know, yeah, it's too bad. But uh, that's how it usually goes. And, uh, you know, I helped a lot of bands out. Poison, I, I helped out in, uh, you know, Van Halen. And, you know, there, there quite a few of the... Um, of the punk bands too. And, and then, uh, you know, the, I would play them, uh, you know, when nobody else was really playing them. Uh, and, uh, even, you know, bands like Oingo Boingo. Um, and I just worked with them at the whiskey. I opened for them at the whiskey okay. recently and I hadn't seen them in many years. You know, Danny's no longer, uh, singing with them, but, uh, they're a great band. And I remember helping to break them. Uh, even bands like, <clears throat> excuse me, the police, uh, you know, nobody was really playing them at first, and I probably played them more than uh, than anybody at the beginning. Uh, you know, uh, on K Rock. Now, what was the sunset? What was the feel of the Sunset Strip back then? Because I saw there's a documentary about the Sunset Strip, and now you go down the Sunset Strip and you see Saddle Ranch, and you see you know the key clubs going, and it's just it's a different feel. I mean, you see pictures from then, and it was it looked like it was just bedlam, but a cool bedlam. Like it was just looked like it was pack i mean what was the feel what was the vibe well there was a, an exciting vibe and it, the vibe was you know what's going to happen next who's next who's going to blow up next who you know in the music scene or the comedy scene and it was a, a time when comedically all those guys were breaking too you know that was a time when uh 
you know, Letterman was getting discovered, Dice was getting discovered, Kinnison, and then all those bands. And yeah, it was it was just it was action filled and probably easier to do then than now. You know, it's a little simpler time. Uh, parking wasn't as bad. It wasn't as um, you know. It just seemed like a freer time. Now, also, and I want to talk about the Rose Bowl parade. Now, you used to do a thing on your radio when the Rose Bowl. How did that come about? Well, uh, you know, again, it was Firesign Theater. Those guys had done it for years before I ever got to town. And uh, they kind of stopped doing it, I guess, because they didn't have an outlet for it. And then I suggested we re- restart that. So we started doing it on K-Rock. And uh, they, we, at, back then, they were in Pasadena. So we wound up on the uh, parade route. And that was cool. You know, it was just us sitting there kind of illegally on the parade route broadcasting. And, and people would be like, you know, the officials would be driving by going, who are those guys? Right. You know, and, and we'd be just ripping the parade apart. And uh, then it kind of uh, gravitated to when I moved to KLOS, I wound up uh, doing it with uh, Peter Crabb. And Peter Crabb is a, um, an actor and a comedian who uh, worked with Monty Python and produced some, some of their stuff. And he's a very talented guy, uh, can do a lot of voices. And uh, so Crabb and I did the shows for uh, many, many years. We probably did 30-some years of those. Now, did you ever get backlash from the Rose Bowl itself? Just because, one, I would think it's good because it brings up their ratings because people are, have to watch it and they listen to you. But, I mean, because, you know, sometimes people in parades are very... Uh, oh, I know. No, we, we got in trouble. The, uh, a couple of years later, we wound up out on the parade route, too, in kind of a legal capacity. They actually had a, a booth for us set up, and uh, we wound up in this booth, and I remember the uh, parade officials, some of them wanted to kick us out. They were like... Uh, the one guy goes, they're mocking the parade. They're making fun of us. Uh, let's get them out of here. You know, they had all those little guys in the white suits. Well, the crowd turned on him and, and wouldn't let him even come up and kick us out. The crowd was like, no, dude. <laughs> so we had the crowd on our side and we got to finish the parade. But yeah, we got a little heat that time. Um, and sometimes people don't like it when you make fun of the, uh, of, a, a you know, a classic old event like that. But I think most people got the spirit of it. We were just having fun. Now, as you're doing this, what celebrities are you meeting? Because back then, once again, I mean, it's, it's a matter of radio is the outlet. You know, people aren't, it's not like now there's access. There's not, there's not like people could just sit there and stop by a TV show. You know, it's like, you know, you're not like now they have all the TV morning shows. Uh, you know, you can sit there and an actor is promoting something. You'll you'll switch the channel. You'll see they'll be on channel five and channel 11. Then the Today Show for you. I mean, I'm sure that people wanted to come in and talk on your show because you had the big ratings and you were in like the number two market in the country. Well, I, I yeah, I got to meet everybody, you know, and um, a lot of producers listen to the show. A lot of big uh, I remember Spielberg calling me one day on the show from his car before people had car phones. I was like, wow, Steven's got it going on. Uh, you know, and I met a lot of celebrities, of course, and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, rock stars and and um, sports stars. I remember I had all the old uh, Lakers on the show. Magic Johnson was on the show all the time. And, uh, I, you know, I had Luke Robitaille from the Kings. Uh, he was still playing then, of course. And, uh, you know, I would have all these uh, different types of people on. It was great being that guy in in the market. I was kind of like Howard Stern for five years. 
out here. And it was great because you got to meet everybody. You know, you never uh, paid to get into a game. I'd go into a Laker game. They'd just go, Fraze, come on in. You know, uh, I was kind of the toast of the town. Uh, and it gets it, the weird part is when that goes away because you're used to you get a little spoiled. You're right. used to be able to, you know, go to anything and get into anything and, and have great seats. And, you know, you're kind of that guy in town. And, uh, it was weird going from that to back to having to, uh, you know, pay for seats that were bad seats. Right. And, you know, did you just, did the ratings didn't keep up or what happened? Well, I think what happened there essentially was, uh, it just kind of ran out of steam because I had a management, um, dispute with, uh, with the general manager. And when that happens, it was a contractual thing. A lot of people don't see it, but it happens in sports a lot, you know, and it kind of soured my position with him and then therefore with, with the station itself. And they kind of cut off all support and I stopped getting promoted. And, uh, you know, I was up against some pretty good competition. Rick Dees was my competition and Rick was, uh, you know, doing very well. He's a very talented guy, but he also had a lot of support. You know, he was getting pushed by his people. I remember they had, I made a joke about having a Rick D's billboard in my backyard, but I really did. When I would walk out of my house in the morning, you know, you're going at three o'clock in the morning, there's Rick D's smiling at you from this cheesy billboard. And you're like, wow. And you know, and then I would try to get billboards from my boss and he wasn't having it. And it just really was one of those personal things that sometimes, you know, it's like when a player has a coach that he doesn't get along with, right? you know, all of a sudden you're on the bench and you could be one of the best players, but you're you know, you, you get into a beef with that person and it really hurts you. And that's what happened to me. How did your body acclimate? I always wonder, it's like, you know, cause you have to get up so early and, and like anything, because you, you know, you're involved in the nightlife and the comedy. It's like, I know everyone can say, well, it's when you're young, you can do that, but it's just, it must be exhausting to have to get up every day at like three in the morning. And, and it's one thing if we wake up at three in the morning to take a pee, you know, we just do that. That's normal. But when you wake up at three and then you have to be on your game. I mean, is did it take a while to get that psyche ready? Just because it's, it's not, it's maybe what ten percent of the people work that kind of shift in this country do. Yeah, well, you know how at first, I by the way, I never got used to it ever. They say that you will, and I never did. And the first year, I tried to go out and do that. I would go to clubs and try to do get up because I was twenty something, and I thought, well, I can handle it. And you know, you can for about a year. Right. After that, you start to fall <laughs> apart and you also learn, you just got to go to bed earlier and you got to skip a lot of stuff. And then you have to hope that, you know, you have a good producer who can t fill you in on what happened the night before. And what I always found was I had a hard time getting up no matter what. And I would drag to the station. And then once you get there, you kind of snap awake, you know, especially after you've done it for a while. So I was able to, uh, I would sleep right up until six o'clock at the station. I'd tell my engineer, wake me up when it's six o'clock and he would wake me up and I, and I just snap right into my bed. See, Pretty I, weird. And I get like, it's like, it's, it's like, when I, when I did stand up a lot, you know, you, I would always say, you know, if you were sick, if you could just get to that stage, once you got on stage, you're fine. You'd be fine. I remember yeah. losing my hometown. I played a gig and I was losing my voice. And I couldn't talk. And I'm like, how am I going to do this? And I don't know what it was. I just, I said to the bartender, give me a bunch of honey, a bunch of lemon. And I mixed it up and I drank it and I got through doing a 30 minute set. And then as soon as it was over, I was like, 
at left back. I think it's just something subconsciously that we go, this is what we do. We got to deliver. I think it is. And I think there's a, an adrenaline thing. I always wonder if they could, um, you know, package that if they, you should, they, they should come up with, uh, whatever that is, because you're right for that one chunk of time, whether it's a half hour or 45 minutes or whatever, you feel great. And then as soon as you get off stage again, it hits you again. Right. You know? Uh, and I did just recently, I, I mentioned Tim Allen. I, I opened for him at Laugh Factory the other night, and he had a bad voice and uh, could barely talk. And he was drinking tea and lemon and honey and, and everything, because that's really all you can do. Right. And uh, he was scared to death that he wasn't going to get it through it. He got through it. And he said later, he goes, wow, he goes, I didn't think I could do that. But you get on stage, and the adrenaline kicks in, and, and you know, you somehow get through it. And then immediately I've noticed as soon as you get off stage again, wham, you get hit with the oh, uh, yeah. flu or whatever you got. <laughs> now, now, when have you started uh, focusing more on stand-up? Because you've been doing stand-up for a while. I mean, you know, from when you were doing the morning show, you really weren't doing stand-up, right? A little bit, not much. But, but you weren't really focused on it. What, yeah. what made you start focusing more on stand-up? Uh, when I couldn't get a radio job. <laughs> so, so, so you just said, yeah. I mean, well, why? I don't understand, you know, why couldn't you get a radio job? Just because everyone knew you and liked you. I, you know, I had a weird thing with management and, um, you know, I got along with everybody. I'm one of those guys that gets along with everybody, but I didn't get along with management and it was a weird thing. And then it became kind of, uh, a, uh, and I shouldn't say I don't get along with management. I don't get, I didn't get along with that particular management. They had sort of made, uh, you know, I didn't get along with the, the one general manager and it became a real, uh, acrimonious thing. And we were in a battle. And I remember, you know, he had my toe, my car towed one time when I was on the air because I'd parked in his spot because I was late and uh, he had the closest spot. And so I remember going on the air and telling everyone in town to flip him off. I gave, I gave out his license plate number and everyone in town was flipping the guy off everywhere he went. He finally had to go phrase, call off the dogs. <laughs> you know, I really got into a personal thing with this guy. And, uh, you know, in this town, you know, everybody hangs out together. He hang out, hung out with all the other GMs and they kind of put the word, he put the word out on me and I couldn't get a gig. I was blackballed. So now you're sitting there, you're blackballed. It's what you love. I mean, radio is what you've been doing. So now you have to basically, what a lot of people have to do in this town is you have to reinvent yourself. Yeah. And that's what I, I, I you know, I decided, well, I better do the stand up. you know? And so I started doing that more frequently uh, I was lucky enough to get a lot of road work, uh, at, at one time and, uh, you know, was able to develop my standup, get better at it. And then I, you know, was able to, to work in that for several years until the radio thing came back around. Now, how did it, how did it recycle and how did you get started up again in the radio? Well, it came out of nowhere. I, uh, well, actually I had been doing a syndicated show for a while for Westwood one. Uh, and it was funny cause my old rival, Jeff Gonzer, who had been the morning guy at KMET, who I always, we always hated each other. And then did, did you actually know each other or you just, no, hate we each just other? hate each other from afar. <laughs> then he, now he's my boss, right? And now he's the coolest guy. I realize, Oh man, this guy's cool. You know, just like D's same thing with D's. I always hated D's. And then now D's and I are buddies. He's a great guy. And, and Gonzer was a great guy too. I just didn't know him, you know? And you, you know, it's a battle you're, you're going head to head. And so you don't like the guy. So then, uh, now he's my boss and I had a great time working there at Westwood one. You couldn't hear it here in Los Angeles. So people assumed I still wasn't on the air, but I did that for a few years to fill in the gap. And then I get a call out of the blue from this kid. Uh, he's the program director at KLOS. And, and he says, uh, I grew up listening to you. I'd like to bring you back. 
and he'd listened to me as a kid. And so then, you know, he hired me, this is about a year and a half ago, uh, to come back to KLOS. And I, you know, I was thrilled to get back and it's been a lot of fun. And he has since moved on. He's uh, now um, a program director in Minneapolis, but, uh, you know, I was thankful to him for hiring me back. So what have you seen as the changes in radio now that you're back? And I, I know now your show airs Sunday night. I'm on Sunday night from 9 uh, p.m. until 2 a.m. Primetime, folks. Uh, you know, and, and I'm having a blast with it. And, uh, you know, the changes are just that it's gotten tighter and tighter. The lucky thing for me is that because I'm doing a novelty show on Sunday night, which is how I started, you know, with Hollywood Night Shift way back at K-Rock, you know, 30-some years ago, um, now I'm back in that same format where I have uh, pretty much total freedom, which is very rare. So I'm lucky uh, to have that, you know. But I think in radio in general has gotten tighter and tighter, tighter playlists, um, you know, more segmented. You know, certain stations are just, that's all they do. They're just going to do that, you know. And um, I feel that uh, that's too bad. I hope it swings back the other way a little bit. We have a PD uh, at KLOS now that's really an interesting guy. Uh, he is smart. His name is Keith Cunningham. And he um, came into the market and kind of had us really toe on the line, a uh, really tight playlist. and, and uh, But he kind of got the station back on track, and now he's opening up the playlist a little. And they're playing some really interesting stuff, and, and he's a sharp guy. And, and uh, I think KLOS right now is the best I've heard of a, a, a rock st- a music station in a long time. One thing that bothers me about classic rock stations now is, because, you know, this is the sign of getting older, is when you hear Pearl Jam or, or Nirvana and they call it classic rock, and I'm going, holy crap, that's not classic rock. <laughs> that's, well, it's not. You know, I just, but, it's, but it is because for so many younger kids. Of that of that age, it is. You know, to them, it's older music. You know, it's from the 90s. And, and yeah, you know, um, that is funny. Uh, we we do feel that way. But, you know, everything creeps up. Like, I was at K-Earth for a short time. And K-Earth, uh, back then, it was all, you know, the, you know, uh, Wilson Pickett and the Beatles. And, you know, and, and now it's, um, they, they're playing Led Zeppelin. They're p- playing Queen. No, that's now considered oldies. So you got your oldie station playing what used to be classic rock. Uh, and, you know, I guess when you think about it, and it probably is a, an oldie at this point. Yeah, I mean, you it's, know, it's, it's 40 years old. That's an oldie. You know, and, and so, yeah, it is weird when that happens, but I think that's what's kind of making it for KLOS right now is that integration of the 90s music with the uh, classic rock. Well, I like it, yeah, because as I said, you know, sometimes it's like anything, you know, you, you put on a classic song and you just, it, a classic rock song, whatever, if it's 90s or 80s, but it just puts your mind in a certain place where you sit there and go, damn, you know, it seems as we get older, we associate songs with something. Or, like, you know, if you hear, you know, Tom Petty running down a dream, you're automatically in a good mood because it's just something that, it's just a fun song and it puts you, in, and that's what music should do for us. Well, you're right. That's what music always has done is it puts you in a mood. You know, and it can elevate your day and it can, you know, help your ride to work go smoother or ride home, you know, but it has to be stuff that you relate to and not stuff that's, I think, uh, burned that that's played over and over to the point where it's no longer inspirational. Uh, it's funny how stuff, um, gets overplayed and then you don't like it and then you play it again later. Uh, I've been recently playing some stuff that I thought had become very burned. Like what? 
uh, well, I played uh, Southern Man by Neil Young the other day, right? And I had been so sick of that song. I loved it when I first heard it, hated it because they played it to death. Then they haven't played it in a while. So then I played it the other day. It sounded fresh and it sounded great. And I find that sometimes you can do that because what you're doing is uh, playing something that was a good song all along, but maybe it got overplayed and, and you got tired of it. And now uh, I feel some of that you can revisit. Now, for your show, you have to cover five hours. Right. Now, how is your prep work for that? And what did you sit there? I, mean, I know you have guests, but how do, when you sit there, do you lay it out like a whole uh, master plan? Like, I'm going to have this person on this time, this time? Or do you just sit there and go, because you have great guests come on. Are you going to sit there and say, okay, I'm going to have this, and then we just run with it? How do you how do you format your whole show? Well, I, I you know, I kind of uh, segment it to who I feel is available, first of all. You, you know, I know a lot of people at this point having been in town so long, uh, but it's who's available. You know, it's always about people's schedules, especially on a Sunday night. So a lot of times you'll, you'll just have to get sometimes who you can, and other times you get amazingly good guests, uh, big guests, you know. But um, what I do is I just sort of, you know, I have a game plan, I have a clock, and, and I, have, uh, I know where each segment is going to be. The segments aren't really planned. You just talk to that person. But basically, you you know where everybody's going to fit in the show going in. And occasionally, you have a surprise guest, uh, you know, that stops by out of the blue. And uh, when that happens, it's kind of like I had Craig Robinson stop by, the actor. Uh, the other day, he was just driving by the station the other night. And he goes, hey, I was listening. I thought, I'm just going to stop in. <laughs> he comes bursting into the studio, you know. Uh, so that was a, a treat, you know, and, and that does happen, but primarily it's, it's a function of booking like you do with your show and you, and you, you have it booked and, um, I prefer it that way. At least, you know, it's coming up next. How was it having a uh, say in Garvey? In? I mean, especially right around baseball season. I mean, those guys are, those guys are Dodgers legends. I mean, Steve Garvey, you know, I remember when I was a young kid, not a young kid, but when I, we would go to baseball games and my mom and dad would take us to, it was called the tunnel. It was where the, the buses would come. And this was in Philadelphia. And I remember Steve Garvey. It was when he was the MVP, and it was a hot Philadelphia summer night, and he was sweating, and he sat there, and to this day, when I look back, I don't think I could really read his signature, but he signed, where other players were there, he signed for every single kid. He didn't have to do that, and in the truth, he probably just scribbled it, but it was just, it was, that's like, it was great. I mean, what was it like having like him, because he's a legend on your show? Well, you know, uh, that's, again, a, a function of having known these guys for a long time. Uh, it's so weird, but when you're the big guy, like I was for a bunch of years on the radio, everybody kind of wants to know you. So I got to meet all those guys. And, and that particular Dodger and Laker era was a good era. It was the Showtime Lakers, and it was, uh, you know, the uh, Tommy Lasorda, uh, Garvey, and Say Dodgers. And, um, you know, I got to know those guys, so Steve's a friend. So when I go to have him on the air now, we know each other pretty well. And the only thing I would give myself credit for is uh, timely booking. I seem to be able to get, uh, you know, these guests, and I, and again, it, you have to be a little lucky, uh, at a, in a timely fashion. In other words, I was proud that I had uh, Say and Garvey on opening day. Right. You know, that to me was cool because I thought, okay, who you couldn't find two better guys. You know, and then I had Tracy Guns on uh, on the weekend when Guns N' Roses were reforming. So he had all the background skinny on that. 
So, you know, I, I just find that uh, one thing I am sort of good at is is getting timely guests. Now, okay, you also recently appeared on Dr. Ken. Yeah. Now, now that must have been great because that's that's a great show. And you got the they. I mean, what was it like? You know, you're a comic. They reconstructed the comedy, the Laugh Factory in on studio, right? Yeah, it was uh, unbelievable. And you know, back in the day, I did a lot of guest starring stuff on television, and I kind of haven't done a lot of that lately. But uh, Ken is a friend of mine, and he called me and he said, "You can just have the part. You know, you're playing the MC at the Laugh Factory. That's kind of what you do anyway." So they went and they're. Uh, you know, their, their set people uh, did an amazing job of recreating the Laugh Factory. It, it just looked exactly like it. It was unbelievable, down to the detail uh, that only people that worked there all the time would recognize. And uh, it was really cool. I was working with Jeffrey Ross, the comedian, and Jeff and I are friends. And and then for, uh, Ken's a friend of mine, Dr. Ken, and, and uh, so it was really fun to be able to work on his show. It must have been just... It- Coming from a comic viewpoint, it must have been weird to sit there that, well, first of all, it's the crowd's there to laugh. And then, you know, in comedy, sometimes even though the crowd's there to laugh, sometimes they don't want to laugh. You know how that yeah. is. What's it like performing into a, a, a TV set that's a comedy club and compared to a regular comedy club? It's got to be two different vibes going. Well, the, vi- the, the, the tricky thing I always think in... Uh you know, on television is a smaller part because a smaller part, you're really, it's like being a pinch hitter in baseball. You're not really warmed up. You know, you have to go in there, nail that couple of lines and then you're out, you know? And, uh, I always think that's a little harder than doing a, a, a part where you get to actually, you know, get a little more involved in the episode because you get to get warmed up. You kind of, you know, uh, by the end of rehearsal, you know where you're going. You know, when it comes to this thing, you kind of got to go in there, punch it out, and get out. And uh, so that's the part I found difficult there. Um, yeah, you're right. You're used to having people laugh or not laugh. There, they're kind of primed to laugh, so they're going to laugh no matter what. And uh, that's a good thing. I had a good experience with it. I thought it went well. Now, what were some of the other TV shows you'd done guest spots on? You said you used to do. Well, I did uh, Quantum Leap. I remember White Shadow and. I was uh, sorry to see Ken Howard had passed on. I, you know, I love, uh, I love that show, The White Shadow. It was a great show. I was so lucky. Both those shows were two of my favorites. And you know, I would, I did the George Lopez show when George was on, and and uh, Tim Allen, and you know, I, 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 you know, little parts here and there. Now, now you still do stand up. How often you get on stage? And now, how, how have you seen? Has your act developed through the years? Just a different attitude, or just getting older? I think because we mature on stage. And I think, you know, we always want to go to the crutch of what used to work, but then you sit there and go, I, I don't want to do that. How have you developed as, as an act? Well, I really pretty much do the same thing with my act because my act's different than a lot of people's. I don't really uh, do anything except one-liners. So there's not a lot of growth there. I think where what happened with me was I just got better on stage in terms of timing. You know, once you've done it for a while, you get your timing down. And with one-liners, that's the whole battle. You know, you can even tell a, a C or D level joke if you're telling it with good timing and rhythm in your set, it gets a laugh anyway. And that's really what I think I've improved on is just my timing and flow. Now, have you, how have you seen comedy change? I mean, you know, it's a matter of, you know, it's funny, like I've, I've done the Ice House and you know, I always say, if you're a comedian and if you go into the main room of the Ice House and you don't get laughs, 
you should probably quit the job because it's 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 the it, that room is heaven. I mean, you go up, it's just it has the feel. The people are amazing. Have you seen crowds change a lot since you've been doing it? Uh, you know, uh, yes and no. I mean, yeah, you know, they're younger for sure, and they're maybe not as aware as you mentioned of stuff in the past. You know, you can't really do references that are too old. A lot of these kids just don't get them. So it's changed in that regard, and it's changed just in their general age. But in terms of, uh, no, I, I love the kids of today. I, I really uh, am surprised to find that. I thought I would really, you know, not get them or, not, or they wouldn't like me, and they would look at me as a relic or something. But you know what? I've been able to connect with them. I think it's because my act is pretty quick, fast, and it doesn't take a lot of uh, thinking, really. It's just kind of a quick, you know, uh, short attention span act. And I think that helps with today's crowds because I do think there's a little bit of ADD going on there. They really are not as focused on a longer piece, you know, You, I find. So, um, yeah, I think that would be the change that I noticed. They're, they're, they're young. They want stuff now. They want it quick. And uh, fortunately, my act still delivers that. Now, when I, saw, I met you at the Ice House, you were, you were dressed nice in a blazer. Now, do you always dress to the stage? Because a lot of times now I see people in jeans, and it's just it's different how people have dressed. Like it used to be, you know, I remember Dennis Miller used to come out with his suit and his white socks, and, you know, it was just a thing. Do you feel that because a crowd is coming to see a show, you should dress nice? No, I do that primarily because of my style again. You know, it's just I have that one-liner Johnny Carson Rodney style that kind of uh, lends itself to a suit. I don't think I would wear that if I wasn't doing that style. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I, I dress that way primarily to help pull off the act. You know, the act is really about being one of those old school guys. What I'm really doing is kind of an old school style with fresh jokes. You know, the jokes are kind of about today and what's going on. And then uh, I think that's what's working for me because the crowds relate to the um, the topicality of what I'm doing. But also they relate, I think, to that older guy who they kind of know in a campy way. It's like, oh, yeah, that's like he's spoofing one of those Vegas okay. guys, you know. And in order to do that, you kind of need the suit. Now, how often do you get up oh, during a week? I mean, do you, do you try to get up a bunch of nights or do you, is there some nights? Pretty much every night, you know, except now I do the radio on Sunday. So six nights a week. So now you're the comedy store, the comedy, where do you, where's, what's your, what's your places you go? Well, I play, I'm lucky enough to be able to play them all. You know, I play Laugh Factory and I play Ice House and I play Comedy Store and Comedy and Magic down in Hermosa and the Improv, uh, you know, and then I work on the road for the Improv and on, on the road for the Laugh Factory and, um, yeah, I'm pretty much everywhere. Do you, do you enjoy Vegas? Vegas I love. I love it, and it, I seem to go over very well there. I was thinking no, because that's just the, the, that kind of act is great for Vegas. I've yeah. heard I've heard split things. Some people love Vegas, some people don't know how to play it because it's people from all different areas. Yeah, that can hurt you if you're too uh, uh, you know localized in your references, and I think that happens with a lot of people who play exclusively in L.A. or exclusively in New York. They don't get out of the market enough to see what works outside of that. But I've been going to Vegas for a long time now, and I'm really comfortable there, and I love it there. And my act kind of goes over well there. So now now when you're out of town, do you not do your show that week on the radio, or do you try to book it where you... Well, I've been lucky enough that um, I haven't had to do Sundays. And, and you know, the Laugh Factory will now not book me on a Sunday. They'll replace me and let me come back. Uh, so, I, you know, I've, I've kind of got to do it that way because the radio takes precedence again. So, I, you know, if I can get a gig that uh, 
will let me out a Sunday night, I'll take it. Now, if you had the opportunity, would you ever do morning radio again, or it's just, it's just too hard on the body? Or Well, you know, yeah, I mean, it'd be rough. <laughs> but I think I could do it, and I, I, you know, it's just adjusting your schedule. I think, really, I could probably do it better than I did then, uh, because I think my act has grown. But I also think I know about the hours. Back then when I was young, I, I really didn't get that you couldn't, you know, burn the candle at both ends. Right. And I tried, believe me. I was coming in really late and then on one hour sleep going and doing my morning show. And I, you couldn't do that now. I never make it. Uh, I wouldn't make it a month. <laughs> but I, I think I've learned how to adjust my hours and I know that, you know, I remember hearing that Stern went to bed every night at 8 o'clock and I thought, okay, well, then I, I guess that's what you got to do. It's just so weird. You think about like eight, you know, it, it's one of those things you go eight, Ugh. especially because you do comedy. So it's oh, like, we're, I mean, I don't do comedy much anymore. And, and, but when I did, it was like, you knew you'd always be home late. I mean, my girlfriend said, do you ever watch, you know, like these TV shows? And I said, well, no. And in, in the late eighties, early nineties, no, because you were at the club every you're night performing, club. and you yeah. couldn't re- you couldn't record stuff. It's not like now you you had a VCR, no, you can re- but yeah, you can record it. Back then, you had to miss them. You're right, and you know, I I um, you know, I, you're right. I I think you miss a lot, even if you record stuff. You just you know, you'd like to be at that concert, you'd like to be at that show or whatever's going on, and you'd like to be out there doing some stand up. But I think you'd have to readjust your schedule if I got that going again. I don't rule it out. Uh, but I, uh, I think I would have to play it differently. Do you think there's a popularity to your show now because it is different than regular radio? Yeah, I think so. And I think that, um, that's just now starting to kick in. Now everybody's starting to listen to me again and, uh, I've got a good buzz all of a sudden, but I had to really work to get that because it, it didn't happen right away. And I think people notice that, yeah, you're playing something different. You're not playing the same music. And you're having interesting conversation, and it is against the grain, and I think it's something that people appreciate because of that. Now, who can we see coming up in the next few weeks? Well, I have Dice coming on because he's got his new uh, Showtime show. It's great. I watched it Sunday. It was hysterical. It's great, right? Oh, it was so good. Yeah, Dice is my buddy. He's going to be coming on the show. I've got Skunk Baxter uh, from the Doobies coming on. I ran into Skunk at a restaurant the other day. He's a fascinating guy because he's not only a rocker, he actually works for the CIA. Right, right. Which is uh, <laughs> is interesting and scary. So he's coming up, and uh, I forget who. I mean, I've got a lot of people on the on the docket who are going to be, uh, you know, coming up. I'm hoping to get Kobe. I'm trying to get Kobe. You will. You will. I want. I want to thank you for coming on. That's that's an hour. See, an hour flies pretty quick. Huh? Well, it did with you. You're a, a wonderful host. Well, thank you. I try to be. Um. Now, now, how can we find you? How can we find Fraser Smith? Well, you know, it's KLOS, 95.5 KLOS, Sunday nights from uh, 9 p.m. until 2 a.m. every Sunday. And, you know, I'm, I'm playing all around Los Angeles. I'm always at Ice House every Thursday night. Friday night, I'm always at Laugh Factory. Monday night, I host the Late Show at Comedy Store. Comedy Store is having kind of a rebirth. They are really booming right now. And the Monday night show is really cool if you get a chance because it's a little loosey-goosey and, and, you know, you go off book a little bit. So, yeah, those are my general dates. I'm down at Comedy Magic a lot on Saturday nights, and um, that's basically uh, where you can catch me. Well, thank you for coming on. I'm glad we got to hook this up because I met you a long time ago, and uh, I said I want to get you on. So, people, go go just Google Fraser Smith. That's all you got to do. And go to KLOS and listen to his show. Uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet all the time. You can go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have actually 
Frasier will be episode number 501. So I have over 500 episodes up there. So you can go, you can check it out. Send me an email, Cooper, coopertalk.net, as I said, because I want to hear from you guys. I want to hear what guests you want me to get. I'm trying to get different guests. I'm getting more musical. I might try to get some more sports ones. So we got to do that. And uh, Cooper Talk 1 is my Instagram. I post a lot of great pictures up there. And if you play words with friends, I'm Cooper Talk 1. I just had a listener play me, and I beat her the first game, but she's beat me in the second Uh-oh. game. So follow Fraser Smith. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.